HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Scenario number one, the dinner party is over, your guests have tottered out well-fed into the night, your husband, wife, consort, roommate, lover, choose one of the above, turns to you with a smile and says, I cooked, honey, you clean, that's the order, and you confront a kitchen that looks like the bomb hit the pot and kettle factory. You can either go to bed and face it all tomorrow like Scarlet, or set a match to the whole mess, or clean it up to the accompaniment of much groaning and the air made blue with obscenity. But there is an alternative. Now, when I say I'm a neat and tidy cook, I say it because I am lazy, not your paragon of virtue. I simply clean up as I go along cooking. You know, a lot of time in the kitchen is spent waiting. You wait for something to boil, to bake, to simmer, to blaze, etc. So while those moments of waiting go on, they can be utilized by cleaning up the utensil I've just dirtied. and put it away now, and I don't have to face it later. Lazy. See? So why don't you join me in this self-indulgence called kitchen laziness. You won't get a neatness award because neatness doesn't count. And Michael A. Davenport here, the shameless chef. Shameless, among other reasons, because I am unashamedly lazy. If you want to hear the rest of Michael's tips for a dinner party, you can explore the entirety of his program, The Shameless Chef, which originally debuted all the way back in 1977 on our website. One thing this episode has in common with The Shameless Chef is that it's a bit of a blast from the past. These stories were reported late last year, but never saw the light of day until now. So while Michael started us off with the end of the night, for this episode of Meet and 3, we invite you to sample a variety of shared dining experiences. We investigate the complex meanings behind sharing a meal with friends, family, and acquaintances. Whether your interest is fostering a community, deepening your spirituality, or maybe even solving a mystery, come grab a seat for this feast of culinary culture. I'm Matt Patterson, and this is Meet and 3 on HRN. Meet and 3. Meet and 3. Meet and 3. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and three. First up, Vaidehi Kudiati investigates the appeal of a parlor game that's persisted for generations. 
food, drinks, good conversation, and close company are the simplest yet most essential elements of a successful dinner party. But what happens when an unexpected guest arrives? Hello, my name is Detective Fitzgerald of the Homicide Division. I am here at the Glittersby Mansion to investigate the murder of Mr. Pontifex R. Fulgain, known to his associates as Mr. Fixer. While a detective grave crashing your dinner party might be a worse nightmare, many hosts are actually quote-unquote inviting them into their homes. The attendees instantly transform into suspects, and everyone has to work towards solving a mysterious murder. But why? So I live in San Francisco, and I think there's a really funny culture there where people are always looking for a reason to dress up and kind of do something silly. And a murder mystery party was kind of the perfect excuse to do that. HRN intern Rana Rudy also recently gave in to the newly resurfaced theme party trend, the murder mystery dinner party. As the name suggests, guests come together for a meal with a twist. Many describe this party as a live-action version of the classic board game Clue, with attendees enjoying a meal whilst trying to catch a killer amongst them. First appearing in the 1930s as a parlor game in North America, the Murder Mystery theme party has actually been around for a really long time. Equipped with elaborate pre-written stories and fake crime scene photographs, the game The Jury Box dominated the Murder Mystery theme party scene. Since then, not only have murder mysteries found their way into people's homes, they have also become potent commercial and artistic sites. For instance, companies fully devoted to crafting immersive mystery dinner shows are not too hard to find. The novelty of coming together with a group of friends to solve a larger-than-life mystery has brought the game into the digital age as well. There are even specialized companies that sell online murder mystery dinner party kits akin to the jury box, making the game more accessible and easier to put together for hosts. I did a quick Google search and I typed in murder mystery dinner party and I ended up purchasing an online quote-unquote box. Many hosts such as Rana choose to purchase these specialized kits to make their events as interactive as possible. Like the original game, they come with full scripts, character descriptions, and exciting storylines. And all attendees play a mysterious character. And there is still room for improvisation. The beginning was everyone introduces themselves so everyone gives a monologue and this was really funny because people got very into character during their monologues and there was a lot of like side talk and and people getting like feisty with one another i'm the best bartender in the city i get to work i get to work in all these swanky places where people typically hire me to to do fun things with my bar right do things like crush ice with my bare hands and use all my unusual bar tools like my nail filer and rounded sledgehammer. But I thought it was such a silly, different experience than what we're used to. It's so different than going to someone's house for dinner or going to just a regular party. It was so fun to watch people get so into character. And like, there's so rarely an opportunity to kind of be an actor or an actress a little bit. That explains why Motor Mystery dinner parties are back in fashion. They are an opportunity for attendees and hosts to not take themselves too seriously while sharing a meal with people they care about. 
And who wouldn't like an opportunity to be a rich heir or detective embroiled in an exciting puzzle? It can be easy to shy away from the pressure of hosting a dinner party. The stress of planning the menu, timing each dish just right, setting the room and creating the perfect ambiance, it's enough to make someone never want to invite people into their home. But avoiding this challenge would mean missing out on some of the most unique and intimate dining experiences we can have. In this story, Rana Rudy introduces us to one London-based host to learn how organizing her supper club transformed her life giving her a community and a platform she never had before. To be invited to a meal in Ozma Khan's supper club is to be invited to more than to just eat her food. It is to be invited into her entire world, an intimate act of love and communication through sharing home-cooked meals passed down from her family generations ago. You cannot eat my food and not honor me. The color of my skin, my Muslim name, my accented voice, I need you to hear my stories. And this is a, a communication, a language of love between me and other people who may not know where I come from. Because in this conversation about the food and who I am, the barriers between cultures come down. Asma's Supper Club was born out of nostalgia. Nostalgia for a home she left behind. Asma was born in Calcutta, India, as the second daughter to a family descending from the Rajput tribe on her father's side and Muslim Bengali royal families on her mother's. As the second daughter, Asma grew up fighting the disappointing stigma the society around her placed on women. As she says, a firstborn girl is sad, a second girl is a disaster. Within her family, though, women were pushed to be more than the outside world felt they could be. When Asma married and left home for Cambridge, she studied law and pursued her PhD. Yet within this new, accomplished life, she still felt a sense of loneliness and unfulfillment. In the midst of all this, she found her way home through food. When I moved to this country, I, I really felt chained down and also at the same time uprooted. It's a really weird feeling. You can't describe that feeling that you felt stuck and yet you felt that, you know, you... It, this disconnect with the land on which I lived, the disconnect with everything was really cute. And it was food that was my way home. So when I was able to bring people around my home table and feed them, I saw the look in their eyes and they didn't, many of them were not Asians. But the first few comments, I remember people saying that I felt I went home. Speaking to Ozma, it is clear she does little without thoughtfulness and intent. Her supper club began small, with 16 strangers around her dining table. From the get-go, she knew she wanted to do more than to just feed these people. She decided that all proceeds from the supper club would go directly to the charity, Action Against Hunger, in support of disadvantaged children in war zones and areas of famine. Knowing how often mothers value sons over daughters, this mission spoke to Ozma as insurance these girls would be fed. This is what drove me. I didn't feel fear. I felt so exhilarated that I was imagining all these little girls who now wouldn't have to go, who wouldn't be abandoned. And uh, so that made a big difference. As her supper club grew in number of guests, so did her impact. 
Today, she is driven by her mission to empower women and to change the narrative around female chefs. Mine is not a profession. I I cook because I need to tell the story, not just of myself. I'm telling the stories of women who are in their graves, the uncelebrated, the unloved, the unwanted, who cooked and were never given any importance because no one valued their cooking. They went to their graves thinking they had no skills. And this is the, the legacy of home cooks in so many cultures. How is it that in every restaurant, in so many of our cultures, it is men cooking as a profession? Where are the women with the big hearts who cooked at home? This is why I tell stories to remind people of who we really are. Darjeeling Express, Ozma's London-based restaurant born out of her supper club, has a certain warmth and magic to it. Sitting anywhere in the restaurant, one can view the kitchen, the centerpiece of the dining room, which is open air and notably runs solely by women. Women who never had a professional culinary education, but who banded together with Ozma, learned to translate their family recipes into scalable cuisine to share in a restaurant. With this, the women of Darjeeling Express have managed to capture the intimacy and comfort of dining in one's family home. I've always felt for a while that, you know, feeding people in restaurants is very, it, it's almost like consumerism. It's consumption. And there's a lot of ego uh, in play when you, especially when you go to high-end restaurants, there is, you know, so much uh, edible flowers and microherbs and little puffs of unidentifiable things that are on the plate and so much kind of uh, show and, you know, little kind of half-inch of food on a plate that is like 12 inches. And you wonder, what is happening? Ozma rejects these more fanciful aspects of the fine dining scene. Instead, her art is the depth and richness of her dishes and the story she encapsulates in each of them. It's still a very emotional process of not feeding, actually nourishing people. It's so intimate. I've cooked for you. When you eat, it satisfies you. It nourishes you. It doesn't just feed you. This is so simple, you know. Asma sees this intimate act as one of the most powerful tools of connection. This whole idea of breaking bread, which you see in the Torah, in the Quran, in the Bible, people often talk about it, about being a moment of peace. For me, this is not a moment of peace. When you and I break bread and eat the bread together, it is a shared moment. It's the great leveler. I'm trying to reduce hatred. I'm trying to bring people to be less cruel, less mean, more open-hearted, more generous. And the only way I know how to do this is through storytelling and food. Women have traditionally carried the role of storyteller in their household and community. In Ozma's Supper Club and in her restaurant led by female chefs, she uses this to share their stories, to build empathy and to create connection amongst people from different backgrounds. I think people always respond to story. This goes back to biblical times. Stories are so important in communities. And somewhere in this crazy life, in this digital world, we've forgotten that human voice that tells the story. Because everything else you may forget, people remember stories. 
During Ozma's Biryani Supper Club, she shares one of her favorite stories. Her family's biryani, as she tells me, is a dish packed with historical depth. While today it is made in her home region of Calcutta, it actually originated in Lucknow, when one of the greatest rulers of this region was exiled to Calcutta by the British. This biryani came out of exile because as the stipend was whittled down, he could not afford to have meat for everybody. The potatoes were put in by the chefs for the not-so-important people. And this is how the potatoes came into this biryani. Because the recipe stayed on. Today, in honor of those people who left this legacy for me, this is my bloodline, that royal family. I cooked the biryani. The potatoes is that symbolism of resilience, of not giving up, of not being crushed. And that's why, unusually, most biryani in India doesn't have potatoes. Biryani made in my region has it. And when I tell the story to people and they serve this whole plate full of meat and rice, you will see them looking for that potato and putting that with great reverence on their plate. This is the power of storytelling. It was through food that Ozma was able to learn so much about her family's history, through learning recipes and cooking with the women in her family. For those who's, who are still fortunate enough to still have their grandparents alive, their mothers alive, go speak to your aunts and mothers about family dishes, because once they're gone, they're gone. And Ozma invites us to experience the joy of hosting for ourselves. Don't be afraid to, to cook. Don't be afraid to feed people. For many people, this is such a kind of opportunity to understand new foods, new cultures. You know, really, the lack of confidence, I understand that. I also went through that. But I overcame that using other tools. You know, like I was using it for charity. Use other tools, but do it. Be brave, because look where it got me. Ozma's incredible story reminds us of the magic of sharing a home-cooked meal. She urges us to be inquisitive about the dishes we eat, to be thoughtful and engaged in our dining experiences, and to not be afraid to open our homes to others. The little details and stress and everything else Ozma reminds us, you may forget. But people remember stories, and hosting a dinner party might be a pretty great story. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a brief break. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. 
Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome back to Meet N3. In the 1950s, amidst the rolling fog and colorful hills of San Francisco, a queer revolution was born. The lesbian potluck, known as the hallmark of queer women's spaces, has brought the community together for decades, cultivating a safe and much-needed space. For our next story, we're featuring an episode of HRN's Queer the Table. Hosted by Nico Whistler, their episode, Spaces for Joy, explores the birth of the lesbian potluck with Reina Gattuso. Reina is the author of the article, How Lesbian Potlucks Nourished the LGBTQ Movement. Through her research, Reina explores how lesbian potlucks have become such a staple tradition and why the community turned to this specific space as a gathering point. The potluck, I mean, it's both a political form, but also one that is born of economic necessity, right? To understand this history, she turns to the couple Del Martin and Phyllis Leon, who in 1953 looked around San Francisco and asked the simple question, where are all the lesbians? As Raina writes, with more access to money and public space than their lesbian counterparts, gay men, while still in danger of homophobic violence, could dance, sweat, and cruise more freely. Lesbians, meanwhile, struggled under the burden of sexism and homophobia. They made less money than their male counterparts and were subject to specific kinds of sexual harassment and violence. Dell and Phyllis decided that if they could not find a space for themselves and other lesbians in the gay bar scene, they would create their own safe haven. Oh my God, those women were so brave. It was like completely secretly, completely like furtively. If you're outed, you'd feel like your entire life and career is over. And so they're meeting in people's houses also because a lot of them are really, really in the closet. Born out of necessity, that became a group they named the Daughters of Bilitis, which rapidly spread all over the country with queer women coming together over communal meals and shared identity. I think the collectivity of it, again, is both economic and ideological. Um, but by the time, I mean, the, the organizers I talked to from the late 60s, early 70s, by that time, I mean, first of all, a lot of lesbian women are rejecting conventional family structures, right? You're not going to be married. You're not going to live with your parents. You are maybe achieving some level of economic independence and uh, forming queer families. I think that was not necessarily as conscious or as sort of utopian in the Daughters of Bilitis era, but when by the time you get to the late 60s, early 70s, these are really conscious political projects of living together and of sharing food. I'm so compelled by the potluck also as this space where women or femmes are reclaiming this act of domestic labor, right? So mm -hmm. cooking, care work, all of these things which are often used to oppress women or to sort of tie us to unpaid labor or to tie us to domestic situations where we're not being respected um, or, you know, we're sort of pressured to do domestic labor at the expense of our careers or our activism or our happiness. Um, and this sort of magical, magical act of reclaiming that for ourselves and for each other. So... What were they eating at these events? A lot of the women I was talking to were white lesbians, were coming from sort of middle class backgrounds. And a lot of these women also were coming out of the anti-Vietnam War movement and coming out of student organizing spaces. And so vegetarianism became a really big thing. So you have a lot of 
lesbians who are choosing not to eat meat as a conscious rejection of both these sort of middle American steak and potatoes values, but also as a rejection of this sort of politics of slaughter, which is intense. And then these kinds of stereotypical lesbian foods that like nowadays are joked about, so like lentils, there were a lot of lentils, um, different kinds of salads. Queer women have carried this powerful tradition into modern day with different forms of lesbian potlucks taking place all over the country. One notably stands out, especially if you're looking for a bowl of hot soup. To explore more, check out Queer Soup Night, a community with chapters all over the country serving soup and bringing queer women together to continue carrying the torch in building this space. As we've heard so far, gathering for a meal can have many meanings and isn't always just fun and games. In many religious traditions, the practice of communal eating is embedded in tradition and spirituality. Deep in the greenery of eastern Washington state, you can find Shravasti Abbey, the first Tibetan Buddhist training monastery for Western monks and nuns in America. I spoke with Bhikshuni Tipton Chudran, the Abbey's founder, about their practice of communal eating. We gather together. As a community, we bow to the Buddha and then we sit down and we usually have a talk. So somebody gives a Dharma talk for about 15, 20 minutes, uh, which is very nice because we are doing various things during the day. And so it's an opportunity to touch back and hear something about our spiritual tradition. After that, we do some prayers offering the food, and then we eat. We have a, a buffet, and so we go in seniority uh, to uh, get our food. We sit down. The first part of the meal we eat in silence, so that mm, can be 20 minutes, half an hour, and then somebody rings a bell, and then that allows us to talk and share for a while. And then at the end, uh, there's another bell, and we uh, all are silent again, and we do a food offering for those who uh, lack the ability to get food. And then we do some prayers dedicating the merit for the uh, people who have donated the food. And then we do some other chanting you know, of different Buddhist texts. In her book, The Compassionate Kitchen, Buddhist Practices for Eating with Mindfulness and Gratitude, Bhikshuni Tipton writes on how the process of creating and eating a meal at the Abbey is a spiritual practice. Before eating, everyone recites five contemplations from Chinese and Tibetan Buddhist traditions. Those who cook, which rotates daily, also recite contemplations before they prepare the food. We think of the food as uh, something nourishing for our body, and then remind ourselves of our long-term spiritual aim to become awakened for the benefit of all sentient beings. So, you know, thinking about cultivating an attitude inside of ourselves of gratitude is important. Cultivating contentment and being satisfied with whatever we give without the letting the mind saying, I want more, or I want better, or I don't like this food, give me something else I like, 
you know, all these other kinds of thoughts that can often happen when we're eating. It gives us a time to, after we eat in silence, the second half of the meal, then we can discuss our Buddhist practice. We can discuss the teachings together. So it gives an informal setting to really have some discussion about our practice. Those who cook can choose the cuisine for that meal, which can vary from Mexican food to Chinese food. This, according to Bhikshini Tupton, allows the monastics to expand their minds to food they may be unfamiliar with. The practice of sharing and preparing meals extends into a community beyond the abbey itself. At the abbey, the monks and nuns eat together with the lay people. That is something that I think is really good for the lay people because they get to see how the monastics eat. They get to join in the conversations about uh, Buddhist practice. They get to know the monastics on a more personal level. All of the food the monastics eat is offered and donated to them. Locals bring food donations directly to the abbey, while those who support the abbey from afar send money with which locals will purchase the food. When People uh, call us and ask us what food they that we need because they want to go shopping. Then we also have a verse that they can recite before they go into the grocery store to remind themselves of what their motivation is and why they're shopping. And then after they bring the food here, they offer it with a verse and we reply with another verse. And then when we cook the food, the cooks gather together and there's another verse that they recite before they begin cooking. Every step of cooking a meal, from the beginning to the end, is considered in the Abbey's practice. Even those who don't sit at the table for the daily meal complete a spiritual practice and are recognized for their contribution to the meal by those who consume it. Guided by Buddhist principles, the communal nature of this entire practice elevates the product of food into a meaningful and mindful process. When you eat together as a community, it's totally different than eating alone. (laughs) You know, I mean, when you eat alone, you just do your thing and finish, and that's it. When we eat together, I mean, hearing the talk beforehand, offering the food together, dedicating the merit together, doing chanting some texts together, it becomes a whole spiritual activity. Bhikshini Tupton includes in her writing that eating together and engaging in meaningful discussion is not confined to the monastery. Anyone who consumes food can strive to share food offering, meals, and discussion with those they care about, thus centering mindfulness and gratitude into their daily life. That's our show. Learn more about the guests and topics we touched on this week by checking out our show notes. Special thanks this week to Aviva Futornik, Rana Rudy, and Vaidehi Kudyadi. This episode of Meet and 3 was produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Katie Mosman-Wadler, Taylor Early, and produced and engineered by me, Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetn3.nyc. That's all spelled out.